1: Hello and thanks for tuning in to a new episode of the Locals Podcast, Talking France. This week we'll be explaining the anger among French farmers that has led them to block motorways across the country. Who's to blame? How long will the roadblocks go on for and how will it be resolved? We'll also look at why Emmanuel Macron's suggestion the French need to be making more babies has caused a bit of uproar, and why in France you're probably better off making a film than a baby. We will also reveal the one département in France that has no train services, but is well worth a visit if you can get there, and find out whether French fries and other so-called French things are indeed actually French. I'm Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by the three tenors of the local France this week, Pearson, Mansfield and Litchfield, or Emma, Jen, and John, as we know them, Thanks for joining us, guys. Emma, before we get into the big talking points of this week, can you just remind us about this immigration bill?
2: Yeah, so we've got the controversial immigration bill, which we talked about before. We're expecting a decision from the Conseil Constitutionnel about that on Thursday, so the day after this podcast comes out. We'll be doing lots on it next week because it's probably going to cause a bit of an uproar.
1: Brilliant. So, listeners, keep an eye on our website, thelocal.fr, on Thursday for news about the immigration bill, and we'll bring lots more in next week's podcast. Moving on to this week, undoubtedly the biggest story of the week in France has been the mounting protests by French farmers. It feels like a long time since farmers in France have staged the kind of disruptive protests that used to see columns of tractors taken to the roads, but this week has seen them blocking main roads and motorways across much of the country. Emma, fill us in on what's been happening.
2: Yeah, farmers have been blocking dozens of motorways around France as part of ongoing protests. Now, the protests actually started at the end of last year with a campaign of turning village signposts upside down. You might have seen them if you've been in the French countryside recently. But since the weekend, it's kind of ramped up with these much more disruptive protest methods. We've seen motorways being blocked with tractors, barricades such as hay bales or concrete blocks, and that's led to huge tailbacks on roads around France. There's also been a blockade at a nuclear power plant in the south of the country. We've seen some what they call Operation Escargot, which is like a rolling roadblock. And there's also been some actions on city ring roads and at payage, the toll points. Tragedy struck at one of these barricades on Tuesday morning when a car apparently tried to drive through the blockade and hit a family who were there protesting. The mother and her 12-year-old daughter died and the father is still seriously ill in hospital. Farmers leaders met the Prime Minister on Monday evening, but it doesn't seem like they got what they were after because unions have said that the protests would continue. And The Agriculture Minister has promised a plan to address some of their grievances,
1: which is supposedly coming out soon. Mm, Some of their grievances. It sounds like they have a fair few reasons to be angry. Can we sum up the main ones?
2: Well, it's quite a mixed bag of complaints. Some of them are to do with French laws and others are about EU rules. A couple of their more specific complaints, which were a planned hike in the price of agricultural diesel and licence fees for water usage, were actually already dealt with at the back end of last year by the former Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne, who postponed both of these things. Some of their ongoing complaints are about excessive regulation. So, for example, they say there are 14 different directives just to do with planting hedges. And there are also some proposals coming up to ban certain types of pesticides and weed killers. Farmers also say that they spend one day in every seven filling in forms just because of the mountain of bureaucracy that's required by both France and the EU. And talking to the EU, they're also furious about the Mercosur Treaty with South America, which will, among a lot of other things, allow cheaper Brazilian and Argentinian beef to be sold in the EU, which French farmers say is unfair competition because the South American farmers don't have to follow such strict rules on the environment and on animal welfare but apart from these specific things the kind of, the overall complaint i think goes deeper and it's about what farmers say are contradictory demands from both France and the EU which on the one hand is trying to make farming more environmentally friendly, but at the same time is pushing farmers to produce more in order to secure what they call food sovereignty, so producing enough food to feed their populations. They say that these two demands are just contradictory and farmers are kind of caught in the middle of these two demands by politicians who are basically just too afraid to tell their constituents that food with higher environmental standards will inevitably be more expensive.
1: Mm. We should stress that there have been farmer protests in several countries in Europe recently, including Poland, the Netherlands and Germany. The farmers have some grievances in common, such as the hike in diesel taxes. One feature of the German protests uh, has been the presence or influence of the far right. Is that the same in France, Emma?
2: Well, I mean, I think there's no doubt that Marine Le Pen's far right Rassemblement National Party are trying to exploit these protests as far as possible, especially those anti-EU criticisms ahead of the European elections in June. But the protests themselves, they come from farmers' unions. They don't have overt political involvement. There is one farming union, a small one, called Coordination Rural, which is explicitly anti-Brussels and does have, I think, some far-right leanings, but the other unions, including the largest farming union, the FNSEA, they have no specific links to the far right. I mean, some farmers probably do vote Le Pen, but others don't. So I think we'll certainly see Le Pen and her party voicing a lot of support for farmers, but whether they'll come up with a a coherent and a fully costed plan that will address the farmers' concerns, I think that remains to be seen.
1: I think we need to get more on this subject from our French politics and indeed French farming expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, the French farm Farmers have legitimate grievances
0: here. Well, it's a very difficult question. That uh, obviously, in, in some areas, I think they are. I think dairy farmers are being underpaid. They get a very small, only about a third, I think, of the brick of milk you pay in in the supermarket goes to to farmers, and their incomes have gone down twenty or thirty percent in the last two or three years, having having climbed back up at one point. There are other areas in which I, I find it difficult to sympathise with farmers' complaints environmental rules, given the environmental mayhem that's been created by farming in Brittany and other parts of France where every river is polluted. So I think the farmers themselves need to kind of look at their own activities over the years and accept that they're the first victims in some way of climate change. They complain, obviously, uh, when, when they're Afflicted by drought and when they're afflicted by torrential rain, and and uh, yet seem, don't seem to make the connection between that and, and the so-called green deal in Europe, which is trying to uh, ease that uh, problem, not just through changes in agricultural methods, but by that also, because that's one of the main contributions to the problems of climate change. I mean, I think I think our uh, Fran- farming is the second biggest contribution to carbon emissions in, in France. So yes, I'm I'm sympathetic to some of the claims, but essentially. You know, this is the problem that's been growing for many years of, of, of hypocrisy and refusal to recognize that you can't have both huge amounts of production on farms, environmental protection, high incomes for farmers, low prices for food, that somehow something has to be done to try and square all those things. And essentially, no coherent policy has been found to do that, not just in France, but right across Europe.
1: John, you mentioned Europe there. How much of the blame for the anger among French farmers can be laid at the door of the EU? And also, do you think the French government, you know, maybe fearful of widespread protests, might be putting pressure on Brussels to kind of ease their demands?
0: Well, not just the French government, Ben. I think, you know, these farm protests have been started, essentially, in, in Germany, in, in Poland, in, in Ireland, in the Netherlands, and they actually have affected the, uh, the general election in the Netherlands quite severely. So I think a lot of governments are beginning to say to the European Commission, we need to think again about our farming policy. And in fact, there was a meeting, I think, of farm ministers earlier this week which is going to be followed up to try and find some way of answering some of the complaints, which some of which, again, are justified, you know, Brussels does have a tendency to try, because it's trying to have to square the conditions in so many different countries, it it often comes out with regulations which don't make much sense in any of them, you know, uh, which is not an anti-European point of view, it's just the reality of of the bureaucracy in in Brussels, which needs to be sometimes a bit more careful about what it does. And often it needs complaints from the the grassroots to force them to think again about the reality of what they're doing, which is not to say that what they're trying to do in terms of making farming more environmentally friendly in return for the huge amounts of subsidies it gets from the European community, uh, European Union, more responsible environmentally. I think that has to continue. I think it's in the interests of farmers as much as anyone else that that should continue. But the way you do that and the pace at which you do that can perhaps be looked at. And I think the French and, and others will be putting pressure for that to happen, yes.
1: You wrote in your column this week, the days when French farmers could mobilize dozens of armoured divisions of tractors are over. Are French farmer unions no longer powerful enough to kind of cause the kind of havoc that they used to?
0: Well, I mean, that was perhaps a hostage to fortune, because we've seen several armoured divisions of tractors move in to make blockades in some parts of the country. I think it's pretty patchy at the moment, whether it's going to sort of move on Paris and other big cities is open to question. I mean, the fact is, there just aren't as many farmers as there were, you know, it's like 400,000 now, whereas it 700,000, 20 or so years ago. And if you go back far, far more than that, and the farm unions are not as monolithic as they were, the, the FNSEA, the big Farm um, Union Federation, which used to dominate the politics of farming in France, has rivals on the left and the right. Now, Confédération Paysanne on the left and the Coordination Rurale on the right are all far right. So they're not as monolithic and not as powerful as they were in that sense. But at the moment, they all seem to be kind of all angry. Not all farm sectors are as angry as, as those down in the south, southeast, southwest, which is where these protests began. It perhaps will spread around the country. I think it probably will be solved in inverted commas quite quickly in the sense that, uh, you know, I think farmers love their farms. You know, they want to go back to their farms. They want to go back to doing what they do. And the spring cut kind of approaches, they've got a lot of work to do. So I think the government will find some kind of package of measures to try and ease some of the problems. And they can always threat to come back on, onto the blockades if they're not happy in, in a few weeks' time. So I don't think we're going to see a long process of protest. I don't think we're talking about the Gilets Jaunes, which some of the or rather silly comments in the French media are suggesting that this is not the Gilets Jaunes, the Gilets Jaunes, were not farmers. Farmers refused to join the Gilets Jaunes. And this is a much more organized, it's a much more corporatist, much more union-led protest than the Gilets Jaunes were. So I think the government can deal with it, knows how to deal with it, in a way it didn't deal with the Gilets Jaunes very, very well, begin with, because it was difficult to deal with them, it was difficult to know what they actually wanted. So, I think that this probably will be a problem for a week or so, but then will be temporarily solved. But as as we were saying earlier, you know, the actual core of the problem is somewhat insoluble. At least, no one's yet found the way to square all those contradictory problems that exist in terms of food, uh, farm incomes, uh, environment. It's difficult. It's a difficult knot of problems to solve.
1: Well, finally, just on the political level, do you think Marine Le Pen can exploit these protests, especially with the European elections
0: ahead of us? In the European elections, yes. I mean, she's obviously going to do well in those, and then she and and Jordan Bardella, her de facto number two, have been going around trying to incite anger amongst the farmers, which wasn't difficult because they're pretty angry already. I don't think, finally, that many farmers vote Rassemblement National, you know, because they realise where their bread is buttered and the butter that they produce, well, which, what bread it goes onto, and It comes from Brussels to a large extent. There are national subsidies as well, but French farmers would be the first to lose if, if the European Union was to collapse or France was to withdraw from it. There are some radical farmers who want that, but not very, very many. And so the effect on farming votes themselves is perhaps not so direct. You know, it'll, it will perhaps affect the sort of mood of the country generally and persuade people who don't think very deeply about these things that Europe is a bad thing and she can argue that. But in terms of the farming vote not directly no, it will affect the European elections I suspect unless the European Union comes up with a more some way of, of kind of uh, easing these problems in the next two or three weeks, which I suspect it will, but whether enough to involve, affect the European elections uh, is, is doubtful.
1: Thanks, John. And a reminder that members of the local can read John's latest column on farmers' protests and indeed all his analysis on France on our website, thelocal.fr. Just look in the news menu bar for the name John Litchfield. If you're British and living in France, you will know that banking is not as straightforward as in Britain. Depending on your situation, there may be special banking or administrative requirements. Often, it can be confusing. Whether managing a move to live and work in France, purchasing a holiday home or retiring, BritLine can help. Founded in 1999 as part of Credit Agricole Normandie, BritLine's advisors can help you establish a new life in France, all in simple, plain English. To find out more, head to BritLine.com. Right, did you know, Emma and Jen, that France has around 3,000 functioning train stations? that welcome around 10 million passengers each day, according to SNCF. Did you know? I did not know. It's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. 10 million passengers is a lot, but there is one département in France that gets none of them. A whole département in France. That's because no passenger trains have stopped in this département of South East France since August 1973. Jen, explain this incredible statistic. And firstly, which poor département in France has no passenger trains?
3: That port département would be Ardèche, uh, which, as you mentioned, is located in southeastern France. And it currently only has heritage steam trains that pick up passengers. Otherwise, the last regular passenger services that came to the département were back in 1973, like you said, so over 50 years ago. The weird thing is that there once were plenty of rail lines in Ardèche, and a lot of them still do exist. What happened then? Well, it has to do with the motorway. So in 1973, the final stage of the Autoroute du Sud was completed, which allowed motorists to drive from Paris to the Mediterranean. People started to see rail travel as old-fashioned, and as such, SNCF chose to scrap a lot of their local lines in favor of developing freight transport instead. So in Ardèche, trains actually kept running on their tracks, but they were carrying cargo instead of passengers. The problem is that nowadays, the freight numbers have been dropping. 20 years ago, 150 freight trains travelled across the département, and now it's only about 40. On top of that, train travel is becoming popular again, especially considering it's an eco-friendly way to travel. So, residents have been pushing for those passenger trains to come back.
1: And what are the chances of that happening, Jen?
3: Well, it's possible, but it won't be for a while there were plans to bring back train services to the Luthiel station in Ardèche in 2024, which would have been paid for by the neighbouring Occitanie region and their rail expansion plans. But this has been postponed until at least 2026 due to an environmental impact assessment. And unfortunately, the other plan, which would have brought trains back to Ardèche, that would have been financed by the Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes region in their plans to invest in train expansion. But they actually rejected these plans in the regional council meeting in December.
1: Mm. Just tell us a bit more about the Ardèche Jen, I think one of the reasons why this story caught our eye was because I've heard of the Ardèche region. It's meant to be beautiful, isn't it?
3: Yeah, people like to go there. I mean, I've heard great things as well. I'm hoping to visit this summer. On top of having plenty of cute historic villages, Ardèche is also known for its nature. So if you're outdoorsy, it's a great part of France to go to. Uh, One of the most popular attractions is the Gorge de l'Ardèche. That's where the Ardèche River flows through the canyons and there are these really beautiful rock bridges that cross over the water. It's supposed to be a great place to hike, kayak, camp, things like that. And then there are also a bunch of prehistoric caves, including the UNESCO World Heritage Site, the Grotte Chauvet, which has some of the oldest and best preserved cave paintings in the world.
1: Mm, Sold. Definitely on the way there. You need a car though, basically, yeah, for the moment.
3: Yeah, for the moment, unfortunately.
1: Thanks, Jen. Each episode on Talking France, we like to tell you about someone making the headlines in France. Well, this week, everyone's been talking about the French director whose film keeps sweeping up International Film Awards, and this week was nominated for five Oscars. That's a pretty rare achievement for a film that's not in English. Tell us about it, Jen.
3: So we're talking about Justine Trier, and she's the director of *Anatomy d'une Chute, or Anatomy of a Fall, in English. Her film is a courtroom drama about a woman accused of murdering her husband, and it's half in English and half in French. So if you're learning French, it's actually a great movie to watch. It's a really interesting look into the French judicial system, and it also dives into some of the complications that come with being in a bilingual, binational marriage. I saw it a few months ago, and honestly, I've been I've been recommending it to people ever since. Anatomy of a Fall won the Cannes Palme d'Or Award, which made Justine Trier the third female director in history to ever get that prize. And it's also been nominated for seven BAFTAs. And this week, like you said, we found out that it was also nominated for five Oscars, including Best Director, which is the first time a French woman has ever been nominated. But the notable thing is that it did not get nominated in the international film category. And that's because France chose to put up a different film. And many people have speculated that this could have been in retaliation for a particularly critical speech that Justine Trier made after winning at Cannes.
1: Oh, what did she say?
3: Well, in her speech, she blamed the current, quote-unquote, neoliberal government for promoting a, quote-unquote, commodification of culture and the breaking down of the French model of cultural exception. She dedicated her prize to all young female and male directors and to those who today are unable to make films— In response, France's then culture minister tweeted that she was flabbergasted by the speech and that this film wouldn't have seen the light of day without our French model of film financing, which allows for a unique diversity in the world. Let's not forget it.
1: Mm, Okay, so Justine Trier uh, lambasted Macron over funding. And it's not like it's unusual for people to have a pop at Macron over something or other these days. But is it true that French filmmakers are getting less state support? I always thought the French system was quite generous, what they call the exception culturelle francaise, Emma.
2: Yeah, I mean, it might be perhaps less generous than it once was, but compared to most other countries, it is still pretty generous. So let's look at that example of Anatomy of a Fall. According to the French trade press, its budget was 6.2 million, and about half of that came from public funds. That includes 1.2 million in tax credits. 500,000 from the state cinema body, funding of between 90,000 and 270,000 from three different regional authorities and 450,000 from the state-owned TV channel France 2. But I think it's important to say that this cash, it's not just a handout. Often some of it will have to be paid back or the funding entitles the body to a share in the film's profits. So the biggest source of funds for filmmakers is the Centre National du Cinema. They're actually funded by taxes on films that are screened in France. So that's all films from like Hollywood blockbusters down to local, made independence. And since 2010, streaming platforms like Amazon Prime or Netflix, they've had to contribute to this too. The CNC generally gives some money in the form of grants and some in what they call box office credits. So basically, if your film does well at the box office, you'll have to pay some of the money back out of what it made. And it generally gives money to films that are either made in France by a predominantly French crew, or which promote France, its regions or its language in some way. The regional authorities, they usually have a film budget as well. And that's usually, again, dependent on at least part of the film being made in that region or showcasing the region or its products in some way. And the idea is that the region gets the money back through promotion of its products or tourism, and that the film also creates local jobs. So I watched a film called Cirque about a French winemaking family that was partially funded by the Bourgogne-Franche-Comté region. It included absolutely loads of outdoor shots of the beautiful vineyards of Burgundy. And I ended up booking a trip to Burgundy a few days later just because it looks so stunning, which is basically exactly what they want. And clearly proves that I'm quite suggestible. But anyway, and then there's the funding from the state funded TV channels like France 2. Basically, they pay for screening rights in advance. So they provide some funding to help get the film made. And in exchange, they get screening rights. So for them, it's a bit of a gamble. Like with this one, they've ended up with full rights to an Oscar nominated film, but they probably also funded a few films that ended up being screened at 2am because nobody really wanted to see them. And depending on the deal, they also sometimes get profit-sharing from films. There is also some state help for people who are working in the cinema industry. For example, the Antameton du Spectacle. This is basically a top-up benefit for anyone who works in the arts. It kind of recognises that employment in the arts is often, you know, in, in fits and starts. And so what it does is it allows you to work in your chosen artistic profession when you can and in the periods when there is no work, the state kind of tops up your earnings with this benefit.
1: It sounds like we should be making a film ourselves here, you know, about the local this state funding <laughs> Vincent Cassel could play me um, <laughs> yeah you, you wish <laughs> how many i mean this suggests that like france must make a whole load of films every year
2: Um, France does make quite a lot of
1: films, yeah. Uh, Roughly 350
2: films get made every year in France. That had been declining over the decades, but the past few years has been a real boost from streaming services, especially Netflix, which is obliged to show a certain amount of local content as a condition of operating in the EU. So by contrast, the UK, which has roughly the same population as France and also has a a thriving local film industry, it produces around 200 films a year, and Mm -hmm. Germany Next Door also produces around 200 Take a look around the world. The USA produces around 700 films a year, but the world champion film country is India, which produces a massive 1,500 to 2,000 films a year. Wow. French people, like, love to watch films at the cinema as well. Like, they cinema do, yeah. is a really popular product in uh, in France. France has the highest number of cinemas per head of the population in Europe. And the French actually go to the cinema more often than any of their European neighbours. And I think you, if you're talking to French people, they, they will be talking about film a lot, maybe mm-hmm. more, I think, than you would hear in the UK.
1: It's true. Yeah. Jen, you love to go to the French cinema. Are you still boiling your clothes when you come in because of the bed bug scare? Or has that all died <laughs> down now?
3: OK, I, I I don't do that anymore. Right, I, think, I, I think it was part of the, the scare. scare. You're right. right.
1: <laughs> okay, good. Let's move on. Leave our uteruses alone. Women's bodies are not a weapon. Comparisons with Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel the Handmaid's Tale. These were just some of the reactions in France to Emmanuel Macron's latest policy announcement. Just what the heck did he announce, Emma, to stir this reaction?
2: Well, we did actually briefly mention this in last week's podcast because it was something that Macron said during his massive press conference. But it's really blown up in the days that followed that. To be honest, it's a bit of a weird one because there's not much to object to in the actual things that he announced to try and boost France's birth rate. They were expanded parental leave and a national strategy to tackle infertility. But it was more about the language he used, in particular the phrase réarmement démographique, or demographic rearming. So it's like a very military phrase to explain that what he wants to do is reverse the trend of France's falling birth rate. The CDIF, which is a group that helps women and families, they said, the implementation of natalist policies, profoundly contrary to the autonomy of women, constitutes a worrying political
1: and social regression. Strong language. Why are they suggesting social regression in France, though?
2: Well, it is true that often countries that have specific policies to increase the birth rate end up coupling those with slightly more sinister policies, such as maybe limits on contraception or the right to abortion. Sometimes this natalist rhetoric goes in the even more sinister direction of eugenics, which means encouraging what is seen as the right type of people, which is often defined along racial lines, to have more children and then discouraging or even forbidding other groups from having children so historic policies in countries that practice these theories have included forced sterilization for certain groups, for example. So you can certainly see why the phrase demographic rearming might worry people, but there is at present absolutely no suggestion that any of these types of policies will be introduced in France. That national infertility strategy that he talked about um, apparently will get the full strategy in the summer, but at the moment it's suggested that this could be a free medical check for people over 25 to check their fertility levels and alert them to any medical problems. So again, not really a lot to object to there, although I have yet to see much evidence, either in France or globally, that in fact declining birth rates, which we see in most Western countries, have much to do with infertility, as opposed to people choosing to have no children or fewer children for a variety of reasons that might be financial reasons, such as a lack of affordable childcare, or maybe worry about the climate crisis, or simply a personal choice.
1: Let's bring in French politics expert John Litchfield again. John, this term demographic rearming used by Macron has caused a fair bit of anger. Is there anything sinister here or is Macron right to be concerned by France's falling birth rates?
0: Yeah, I can't see that it's sinister. You know, we don't even know what he intends to do yet. It was one of those things he threw out at the press conference saying that he wanted to do something to try and reverse the decline in birth rates in France, but hasn't said what he will do. But there's been an obsession with France with its lack of population uh, and how Germany has grown, Britain had grown and came to dominate them in various ways because of that. I don't know. Recently, that had been reversed. And all French governments, really, in the last century in this, have had policies of trying to encourage more babies, which have been somewhat eased recently. And some of the uh, concessions made to families and so on have been have been cut back, not necessarily by the, this government, but by previous governments initially. And the French birth rate, like the birth rates elsewhere in, in the developed world, has fallen. So France is no longer producing enough babies to replace its existing population, never mind that it grow. There is now, for the first time, a much bigger birth rate amongst people who are born abroad amongst immigrant families, essentially. All of those things are, in, in, the, in the future, uh, potentially problematic, obviously, for France. And, and uh, whereas France was expected to grow quite quickly in the, in the, in the next say, 40 or 50 years, it no, it no longer is. And therefore, you're going to have problems like we have already with pensions and so on, and having not enough young people to support the, the oldies like me in the years to come. So it's a genuine issue. I think uh, Macron was right to address it. I don't think it's a right-wing or left-wing issue people saying this is a more right-wing government. I don't quite buy that. And I think this is one of the issues which is genuinely sort of goes across the political spectrum and, and needs to be addressed in some way. What he does to address it is important, but but I, I don't see it myself as anything sinister. No.
1: Thanks, John. A fewer than 700,000 babies were born in France last year. That's the lowest level since World War II. Emma, what does France do at the moment to encourage people to have more kids?
2: Well, I think... When people are sort of looking at whether they can afford to have to have a baby, for most people, having a secure and decently paid job plus maternity and paternity leave and subsidised childcare are the big ones. France's system of parental leave and its state-funded childcare is decent. It's not as good as some of the Scandi countries, but it is around average for Europe. But, I mean, if we're looking at more sort of specific financial inducements, there is also what is called the quatre Famille nombreuses, mm-hmm. This is available to parents who have three kids, if at least one is under 18, or five kids of any age. And that card just entitles you to various discounts. So, for example, if you have three children, the whole family gets 30% off the cost of any train tickets. And if you have six kids or more, the whole family gets 75% discount on their train tickets. Six kids or more? Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? (laughs) I'm not really sure it's worth the discount, to be honest, but, you know, personal choice. Yeah, you need basic (laughs) maths there. It's um, the There's also a 50% reduction on the Paris public transport network and various shops and leisure businesses like cinema chains often offer discounts with this big families Mm. card. Having three or more children also entitles you to some extra benefits and family allowances via the CAF, or those are, these are means tested, so it depends on your income as well. And you can also benefit from a reduction on the surcharge that the French state levies on SUVs and high-polluting vehicles. I think the theory being that you might need a big car if you have loads of kids. Less well-known, but one I found out about this week, there's also the Medaille de la Famille, which is a family medal delivered by the prefecture to people who have four or more children. And getting that medal can entitle you to a bonus of up to 300 euro. It's actually a medal? Hmm? It's actually a medal? It depends on the prefecture. I think in most cases it's a certificate now rather than a medal. But in bad news for foreigners, many prefectures state this only applies to children who have French nationality. And honestly, to me, this one feels... Pretty old fashioned and much more akin to natalism than anything Macron announced. So I don't know mm. why people
1: aren't protesting about this. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for that, Emma. Really interesting stuff. New legislation in France to tackle climate change is changing the way you let or sell properties. From next year, you will need to provide an energy performance diagnostic certificate with a rating above a G grade to potential tenants or buyers. If your property is modern, this won't be a problem. However, bringing older properties up to that energy efficient standard could be complex and costly. Luckily, there is help available. To help you plan your renovation, BritLine, the French bank with British thinking, has created a handy on online guide their tool will help you estimate your diagnostic grade identify any grants or loans you may be eligible for and identify local tradesmen head to britline.com where in their help and resources section you will find several blogs on the subject on to our final topic it's an important one straightforward reader question Uh, i'm going to put it to you jen i think are french fries french
3: that is a great question, and I'm going to start by spoiling the answer early. We don't really know for sure. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, go on then. Talk us through it.
3: Basically, There's a lot of
1: theories, isn't there?
3: Yeah, there are. <laughs> Basically, french fries, or chips as you guys call them, mm. have a few possible origins. So the most common theory that you'll hear is that American servicemen during World War I ate something resembling a fried sliced potato while serving in Francophone Belgium. Then they went home, they raved about French fries, even though they really should have been calling them Belgian fries. But the Americans in this story were kind of ignorant and called them French because that's the language that the Belgians were speaking.
1: Mm, That kind of makes a bit of sense, seeing as Belgians have been claiming French fries as part of their gastronomic heritage for a long time, Jen.
3: Yeah, and they even have this old legend about the first time people started eating French fries, which supposedly happened in 1690 in the Belgian town of Namur, The inhabitants normally ate a type of fried fish, but when the river froze over, they had to come up with an alternative, and someone apparently had the brilliant idea to instead chop up some potatoes and fry those. Now, this has been pretty much debunked, considering the fact that potatoes themselves did not come to the region until at least 1735, plus some historians don't think that peasants would have wasted the fat to fry stuff, which does bring us to our second theory, that maybe French fries started off as Inca or Spanish fries. So let's not forget that potatoes are a new world food. They did not exist in Europe until after the Spaniards made contact with the Inca Empire in the mid-1500s. So the idea is that the Spaniards brought potatoes back with them from the Andes, and then they maybe started frying them in oil, which actually was a culinary tradition in the region. Only problem with this idea is that one whole fried potato does not a French fry make.
1: That's crazy. i would never heard of Inca fries theory before. <laughs> Jen, any more theories?
3: Okay, this one's my favorite. It's that potatoes became popular in France in the late 1700s, thanks to the efforts of the agronomist Antoine-Augustin Parmentier, who has a very nice Paris metro station, I might add. And by the end of the century, French people had gotten into potatoes so much that there were street vendors at Pont Neuf, which is the oldest bridge in Paris, and they were selling them, this version of them, basically the grandfather of French fries, slices of browned potato. Now, how did that make it back to the U.S.? Apparently, Thomas Jefferson visited France with the enslaved man, James Hemings in the 1780s, and Jefferson loved French cuisine so much that he arranged for Hemings to study to be a chef and to bring back those, quote-unquote, fried potatoes, thinly sliced, to be served at his estate. Now, it's a bit tricky to pin down exactly when Americans all decided to call sliced fried potatoes, French fries. But it did happen sometime in the late 19th century or early 20th century, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So the soldier hypothesis may not be entirely wrong.
1: Just to clear something up for us, is it true the Americans renamed them Freedom Fries (laughs) due (laughs) to France's opposition to the Iraq War? Could you just clear that up?
3: Yes, that that was, was that uh, a joke? That was a short period of time, Ooh. not our brightest moment. <laughs> just
1: another thing that you caught my eye there. So Antoine Augustin Parmontier, he's the reason Izzy that the French version of like shepherd's pie or cottage pie is called Achet Parmontier. It's named after him. You know, with the meat and the yeah, potato. Yeah, with potato on the top.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, anything topped with potato is, right. uh, is Pimentier. Pimentier. yeah, Interesting. All right. And, and yes, as Jen says, he has a metro station named after him. Named right? after him as well, yeah.
3: Yeah, with a lot of pictures of potatoes. Yeah. Ah. Well, look,
1: potatoes are great. We should celebrate more potato people. We should. All right. Uh, interesting possible origins of French fries. But what about all the other stuff we call French that may or may not actually be French? Should we start with French toast? I don't even know what French toast is. Can you explain what it is? Well, it's what we in the UK call eggy bread. What's eggy bread? (laughs) The hell is eggy bread?
3: Okay, is French toast actually French? Uh, Well, the French have a different word for it. They say pain perdu, which is basically lost bread. Mm. Do you think it's officially French, Ben?
1: I don't know. Is it? It's just toast dipped in eggs. I mean, it could be French.
3: Well, okay, so yeah, you kind of spoiled it because plenty of different cultures have some variation of a dish that's meant to revive slightly stale bread, which is the goal of French toast, because otherwise you'd just throw it away. In the US, the reason that the name French toast might have come about has to do with the fact that pain perdu was brought over by the French to Louisiana, although that original recipe has evolved over time.
1: Okay, and I've got a list of things in front of me that are French. I don't actually know what they are. What's a French manicure? And is it French?
3: (laughs) This is maybe not
2: your area (laughs) of expertise, is it? It's a type of manicure where like most of the nail is pink and then just the tip is white. So it kind of looks like a natural nail. Right. okay. Okay. So
3: what do you guys think? French or not?
1: No idea. For
2: you. Uh, do you know what because it's kind of fashiony i'm going to in- guess that this was invented in paris
3: <laughs> good guess <laughs> it's not french uh though if you go to a nail salon in france you can just say ongle and they will do this the nail style with the pink base and the white tip was invented by an american makeup artist named jeff pink but it kind of counts as french because it did become popular when he was showing it off in paris hence the name okay yeah that makes sense all right, uh, this one's for for the Brits. Is a French letter French. <laughs> oh. I have to say I didn't know what this was because it's a very British turn of phrase. Can <laughs> <Guys, laughs> you explain what this is? Oh,
1: what's a French letter? What <laughs> <laughs> the hell is it? Emma, help me out.
3: It's a condom.
1: Oh. oh it's got to be French, surely.
2: I mean, it is a general trend that in the
3: UK like anything to, vaguely to do with sex we kind yeah. of blame the French for. Yeah. You guys are doing too good of a job with guessing these. (laughs) Okay, so this one might be due to British attitudes towards the French. So condoms were not invented in France. Uh, The two inventors were British and American. There are some reports that the British started saying French letter because servicemen were given condoms in a letter uh, before being sent off to war. But there's another theory that in the early 20th century, the British mainly saw the French as promiscuous, so they associated condoms with them. And I did read this one account about how The term may have come from the medieval practice of making condoms from animal intestines, uh, which apparently was done in France, but I didn't find this one to be as convincing. Apparently, a lot of cultures also made condoms from animal skins and intestines.
2: There is a town called condom in France, though, isn't there? Which? uh, That's true, yeah.
1: It should be called French letter.
2: Yeah, well, I, certainly a lot of like school trips go there and like take a photo of the sign yeah. and giggle like
1: children because we have a very sophisticated sense of humor. Exactly. Can can we just clear up another a similar theme? French kissing is it French? Did it come from France? Anyone know? I, I feel like quite lots of cultures probably
2: have the, the concept of kissing with tongues. What I do know is that uh, in French, there is no like specific word for a French kiss. In fact, you will sometimes hear French people talk about
1: a French kiss. Right. Um, Isn't it, don't they I, I, I use a word like galoche, galoshing?
3: Yeah. Yeah. All
1: right.
3: yeah, that's what they would call it. I think that you caught me off guard with this one, but I think that it is my fellow Americans that came up with the term French kissing because we do have a very romantic view right. of France.
2: There's kind of a theme emerging here that anything that's kind of seen as romantic, sexual or fashionable, we just mm, label French. French, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> um, a final one to finish off, guys. Uh, you know, French horn, you know, that uh, musical instrument, the brass one, the curly one. Yep. Is it French?
2: Great question. I don't know that, but I do know that like traditional French hunters often have similar instruments like a hunting horn, but it's kind of big and elaborate and curled like that. So if I had to take a wild stab in the dark, I would say it maybe originates from a French mm. instrument. I
1: will let the International Horn Society answer this. Um, <laughs> they refuse to use the misleading term French horn. And you know what they call it instead? Horn. Horn. <laughs> And I think that's a good moment to draw this episode to an end. Thanks to all listeners. We'll be back with more Talking Points from France next week.